Welcome, everyone, um, and thank you for joining us uh, for our session on building a sustainable platform and pipeline for AAPI leadership in higher education. I'm Joyce Moy. I am the former executive director of the Asian American Asian Research Institute at the City University of New York, and I will be acting as moderator in today's session. During this session, you'll have an opportunity to hear from three experienced leaders uh, who will share their observations, insights, and thoughts about this very important issue of the remarkable lack of Asian American Pacific Islander representation in the upper ranks of higher education. In our speakers today are uh, President Ellen Jun uh, from uh, UC uh, Stanlaus, uh, Les Wong, President Emeritus of San Francisco State, and Frank Wu, President of Queens College City University of New York. Um, you can learn more about them by reading their bios, but you will also hear quite a bit about them as well during the panel. Um, what I'd like to do uh, before jumping right into the panel is to present some data, which I think will really surprise you in some ways, but this becomes a point from which we can uh, take this discussion. This will be followed by the panel discussion. And at the end of the panel discussion, what we'd like to do is to open up the floor to the audience. We are particularly excited to hear your views on these issues, to hear the kinds of things that might be helpful to those of you that are uh, looking at potential future leadership positions and so on. So with that, let me get on with the data and then we'll get to the panel. So this is data that was presented in an American Council on Education study uh, that was published in 2017. And in this, what you'll see is that 2.3% of presidents, both men and women, uh, were of Asian Pacific Islander heritage. And earlier uh, in the report that was issued about five years uh, previously, it was 1.5. And prior to that, in 2006, it was 0.9. So we have seen some increase, but yet it's a very, very small percentage, given what else we know about the Asian American Pacific Islander populations within the university environment. Um, in terms of other issues to be aware of, you find that in terms of those that are in positions of president, 23.9% of them indicated that they had prior experience as president, CEO, or an interim president position, either on a campus or within a system. And 42.7% of presidents actually had experience as a chief academic officer or provost. So these are the main feeders into positions of the presidency. And as is clearer to everyone here, with very little representation in the ranks of leadership in higher education, we are not feeders into this population of those that achieve the position of presidency. The other interesting note here is that at the time of this report, 
um, six, uh, the average age of the presidents was 61.7%. So whereas we saw some progress in terms of the number of Asian uh, American Pacific Islander um, folks, there was also quite a bit of retirements that took place over the last five years. And so based on uh, the calculations we've made, some of the data we've collected, we think there might not have been much progress since the 2016 data was collected. However, we won't know for a while. It looks like um, ACE is is going to be uh, issuing a report sometime soon, and that will give us a clearer picture. But these are, this is the data that underpins what is actually happening. Um, this is just a summary, uh, not without breaking down gender. And then just a couple of other um, things to call to your attention. In terms of uh, faculty, uh, in terms of race and ethnicity, uh, currently, or as of 2020, 12% uh, of faculty nationally are AAPI. Uh, and again, that's something to be aware of because 70% or so of those that have had, um, you know, experience in academics are um, are among those that reach the presidency. So uh, in education, for example, 79.5% uh, indicated uh, that they had a PhD. Uh, and then uh, also in terms of years spent uh, in the classroom or in the lab of those that did have that experience. So there are implications for all of this. And essentially, um, another uh, bit of information that we received, uh, thanks to uh, President Ellen Chun, um, from a, an executive search firm that gathered some data recently. They indicated that uh, from their sources of 245 universities that offered master's degree, there were nine presidents of Asian, uh, of AAPI heritage, representing 3.6% of the presidents out of the 245. There was nobody in the provost position. This is a major feeder into the positions of the presidency. The R1 public and private universities of 146, uh, there were three or approximately or 2%. And then in the provost position, there was also 2% uh, AAPI representation. And the R2 public and private uh, universities, there was 2.2%. And in the provost position, 4.4%. And in the R3s, uh, out of 29 universities, there were no presidency presidents of AAPI heritage or people in the pipeline as provost. So in terms of the implications, uh, when you look at the data that we have available to us from 2006 to 2016, you see that 70 to 80% of university and college presidents began their careers in faculty. That bodes well for Asian Americans, uh, AAPI, in that uh, we make up a fairly uh, large group in terms of faculty in universities and colleges across the country. 
Um, so that's good news. However, uh, when you look again at the data, 42.7 to 44.7 percent of chief academic officers or provosts uh, were the positions that folks held immediately prior to becoming president. And, and again, with the very limited number in the pipeline from the API community, uh, it does not look like we're going to see much increase, uh, as well as, again, those that have served previously as presidents of higher education institutions. Again, uh, we have a small number, and therefore it does not hold well if these same patterns persist. And it looks at this point as if they probably will. Um, more than 50% of the chief academic officers and high-level academic officers have actually been promoted from within institutions. Um, that makes you think that perhaps current leadership needs to look more carefully at who's in the pipeline in their particular institutions, and perhaps there are things that they can do that would help, again, to fill the pipeline with AAPI candidates. Um, and so without some proactive uh, work being done, it looks like the traditional path to the presidency or to chief academic officer positions is essentially going to be closed to APIs um, because we it, it really does appear that we're going to have to do something directly to feed the pipeline. Please meet our panelists, Frank Wu, Ellen John, and Les Wong. Uh, and I'm going to jump into a series of questions uh, for them. Um, our first question is, why this topic and why now? Talk a little bit about why AAPI representation in the higher ranks of education is so important and why it might be important to create infrastructure to address these issues. Um, let me start with Frank and uh, then we'll go to Ellen and then Les. Well, I'll give you uh, three answers. The first is uh, Asian Americans are qualified and interested. You know, there was a time when people said, uh, consistent with stereotypes, that well, Asian Americans like to remain bench scientists. They don't really want to be in charge. There's a, a faculty member here at Queens College who actually researched that as to engineers. And they found that's just not true. It's a stereotype. Asian Americans want leadership roles just like everyone else wants leadership roles. So the first response is Asian Americans are interested and they're qualified. The second response is Asian Americans have been consistently excluded. When you look at representation, people sometimes say, well, aren't there all these Asian Americans? Yes, it is true that in some disciplines, not all, and at some levels and in the undergraduate population, many places, Asian Americans are overrepresented relative to their proportion of the general population. However, it's important to use appropriate baselines. When you look at provost, president, even when you look at dean, the baseline is not the general population out there. The baseline is the pool that you would be drawing from. And Asian Americans are actually severely underrepresented, suggesting that there is bias here. There's something going on. The third answer uh, that I would offer is Asian Americans have something to contribute, a different perspective. And I don't just mean in everything that we do, I mean, as Asian Americans, a perspective that's neither black nor white, that is suited, especially in these difficult moments where the nation is so divided, to looking at coalitions and compromise 
Uh, and it's not to suggest that I walk around all day thinking, here I am, an Asian American president. I don't. But my Asian American identity does inform so much of what comes up on a day-to-day -day basis. Those, those would be my answers. Uh, thank you, Frank. Ellen, I'd like yes. to you. Thank you. Um, I agree with Frank and, and all of the sentiments he shared, but I would add a couple of more things. And one is that um, I think it's white now, especially, it's especially important to consider uh, API representation in the C-suite, in the presidential suite, uh, for several reasons. One, historically, we now have a vice president who is um, Desi, who has uh, affiliation with the API community. Um, with Kamala Harris. And also the fact is that um, in, in my own CSU, well, we have 23 campuses. And at one point, uh, Les is a dear colleague who was at San Francisco State. I'm still here at Stanislaus. And uh, we had Leroy uh, Marishina, who was at um, East Bay. Uh, then Judy Sakaki was at Sonoma. And then uh, Fran Virgie, who's at Fullerton. And so now um, we've recently a new President um, Richard Yao has been coming, has come to Channel Islands, and Mike Lee is the interim. But with my retirement and Les's retirement, out of 23 campuses, there will only be two API presidents, and both male, at uh, with Richard Yao at Channel Islands and Mike Lee at Sonoma. So it struck me in the last couple of years to wonder why is it that in California we have the highest, second highest or first highest um, API representation outside of Hawaii, that we don't have more. And we certainly have many um, very high percentages of Asian Americans in our 23 campuses, but we don't have the representation at the top level. So I started worrying about this and started thinking that I need to intentionally um, mentor API um, folks into the pipeline because there's not many of you in the pipeline. And so this is an attempt, I think, to really become intentional and to ask why is it that we are the largest percentage of underrepresented students um, in many cases, and then the largest number of professors who are, are unrepresented are Asian, but we don't make it further into the higher echelons of, of academic leadership. So I think this was a perfectly timed, um, you know, a, uh, attempt and thank you to Les and Frank uh, for putting this t event together to, to ask ourselves how can we build this pipeline and how can we make um, our API, um, you know, uh, individuals more uh, interested and ready to enter into the C-suite. So thank you. Thank you. And Les, um, please go ahead. Uh, your mic is uh, muted. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, my two colleagues have, have hit home runs. I, I'm going to add a third and uh, something that has become increasingly important across the country. Um, if you look at, and it's held pretty steady, 16% of all the PhDs uh, earned in America are uh, awarded to Asian, Asian Americans. So we're one of the largest PhD pools and yet there somehow is a ceiling there. But the, my more important point is if you look at the population of uh, Maryland, Texas, California, New York, uh, some of the, the larger urban states, by far the largest student population are Asian and Asian roots students. 
And I have to tell you, the, the first thing that happened to me both in Michigan and in San Francisco were student, Asian students coming up to me going, oh my God, you don't look Asian, you're kind of Asian, but at least you're one of us. There's finally someone in the president's office that kind of looks like me. So I think if you look at the demographics, and I think uh, President Biden would readily admit that it might have been the voting block of Asian Americans uh, across the country that gave him a, a fairly significant chunk of votes. So people are suddenly recognizing that um, we have a voice out there that needs to be heard. And I want to also add to, to Frank and Ellen's comments, the situation in corporate America might be even worse. Uh, if you look at representation on uh, Fortune 500 boards, uh, superintendents, uh, nonprofits, you just don't see our folks uh, in those leadership positions. Uh, Buck G with C100, a, a national group, uh, has done a pretty good analysis of corporate board membership. And unless you own, create, and run the business, you're probably the only Asian in a corporate office. And on public boards, almost zero. So um, there, there really is not just higher education, but the larger uh, participation. And it's nice to see uh, the mayor of Boston, uh, Major League Baseball now has a female Asian general manager. Uh, so there, there, there's that evidence that things are happening. Thank you. Um, you know, to Frank's point about the lack of interest or the stereotype that there is a lack of interest, there was a study I came across that showed that Asian Americans, in fact, were more likely to be interested in positions of leadership uh, than other groups, including uh, white groups. Um, so thank you for that. Um, looking back at your journey to the presidency, uh, what kinds of experiences, individuals, or mentorship did you receive that you think smoothed the path or supported the pathway for you? Um, when we were working on a pipeline at the City University of New York, one of the things that we heard often from uh, faculty was that it never occurred to them to think about the position in higher education leadership. And so I think it, it would be helpful uh, for people to hear from you in terms of your path. And um, Frank, may I start with you again, please? Sure. You know, I never thought I would be able to do something like this. Uh, my parents emphasized education, but they didn't emphasize leadership. I actually have a little essay coming out in a book entitled Everything My Asian Immigrant Parents Taught Me Turns Out to Be Wrong. That's a facetious title. I would care if it weren't for their sacrifices and the standards they set. Uh, but I'll, I'll share a super quick anecdote uh, and then explain uh, about uh, who mentored me. When I was in high school, so I'm 56 this year, this is 40 plus years ago, I got elected to a role in student government, incredibly unlikely in the Midwest in the 1970s. My parents said, resign immediately. Um, you, you have to be studying so you can get into a good college. They did not understand good colleges would be impressed by a student government leadership role, plus I would have developed the skills that I needed. And so I think, and people may be critical, and you should feel free to, to do this in the chat. Some of the ways we've been raised and trained hold us back. There's an internal thing 
where defer to authority, et cetera. If you constantly defer to authority, you will never be the authority because you've been too deferential. So some of this goes against the grain of the way our parents and grandparents taught us to behave. It's about shaking hands, making eye contact, doing these sorts of things. So I didn't have any Asian American mentors. The, the reason is there weren't, there was nobody Asian American in this role. I look up to Les, I defer to Les as my elder, but Les is not a full generation <laughs> older than me, and he would be offended if I suggested that, right? So uh, when I was coming up, there wasn't someone that far ahead who looked like me. It, it just wasn't. Uh, Chancellor Tian uh, would be the only example, and I did know him uh, a, a bit, uh, but he was singular. He was iconic, and other than that, there just wasn't anyone. I did get some mentoring along the way, but people, and again, I'm going to generalize, who aren't Asian American don't get some of the issues that we face. They just don't understand some of the stuff that's related to being neither black nor white, having Asian immigrant parents, and, and that sort of thing. Thank you. Uh, Ellen? Thank you. Um, so in preparation for this panel, we were told to share a little bit about our story. So I've put together um, a uh, PowerPoint. So indulge me for a moment so you can see. Um, okay, and then, um, oh, here we go. Uh, so I just want to, now each of you whose API has a very unique and compelling family story. And I would ask you, uh, I'm a, I happen to be a cognitive developmental psychologist by training in my doctoral work. So um, I would tell you that this is, it, it's important to reflect on your family story because each of that, your family stories pay a contributing role. So this is just to give you a fact, a fact that um, that my parents are from South Korea. My father had a very deep belief in uh, American democracy. He came to the United States to get his doctorate degree in political science, international relations. So I was the firstborn, as you can see there, they had a, a very um, arduous, uh, grim childhood being living through the Japanese occupation and then the Korean War. But I will tell you that what's of interest here is, as Frank was saying, how you were raised in your family of origin makes a difference. So my father was determined to become American. That was during the assimilation period of the United States. And so he came here to be American. And uh, he decided he was not going to raise us the Korean way. And so instead, they raised us according to baby care and child, uh, baby and child care, Benjamin Spock. That was the foremost pediatrician. His book actually um, outsold the number of Bibles that were sold in America on a given year. So uh, we were raised in a very Americanized way, which was radically different from um, how my relatives who came to the United States, they still raised their kids um, more in a Korean way. Who, and then that caused a lot of problems, obviously, for uh, assimilation. So my father took his first job at Mercer College in Macon, Georgia, and then um, later uh, emigrated, uh, moved to the north, um, to Michigan. But so here's the melting pot issue. My father used um, a lot of the uh, techniques in Dr. Spock's book of using family counsel. That meant that you sat down and you asked your children to make decisions in the family. So they actually had us uh, vote and discuss what to change their names when they naturalized as citizens. They were Sungjuk and Youngsuk. And guess who they became? Bob and Sue, very Americanized, right? Uh, so we they did not teach us anything about our Korean roots or traditions. The other thing is I lived through the civil rights movement. Um, we were in Macon, Georgia, a terrible time for bigotry and discrimination. That's, then we moved to 
the North in Michigan, and the Women's Liberation Movement was very important. And so I would say that because my father had three daughters and no sons, he became an accidental feminist. And therefore, he uh, championed all three of our daughters, his daughters. We all went on uh, to get our, uh, you know, move into the PhD sector. So uh, the, the wild thing is that growing up in Michigan, people would say, where are you from? When I would talk and they, I'd say, well, I'm from Jenison, Michigan. No, and where, Jenison? I said, well, no, it's near Holland, Michigan, uh, right next door. And then they say, no, where are you really from? I'd say, well, I'm from, I spent time in Macon, Georgia. No, but where are you really from? Where did you learn to speak English so beautifully? <laughs> and um, I said, well, I'm, I'm born and raised in the United States. I'm American. I was born in Champaign, Illinois. My father was getting his doctorate there. And they wouldn't take no for an answer. So they finally, uh, I tried to think, well, everybody in my town is blonde and blue-eyed because they're from Holland. And um, so I was trying to think of what other group is blonde and blue-eyed. So I would tell people, well, actually, I'm from Sweden. <laughs> and people would laugh, and then they would finally understand that I could be born and raised and speak English perfectly because I was born in the United States. So um, that then, you know, was a way to tr sort of get people to think outside of the box, right? And so that's a, a joke that has followed me and my family for, for you know, years now. Um, so, but the question here is, how did you become a university president? And what I would say is that really, I used to say it was more accidental, but now I would say I'm a serendipitous president, uh, meaning that it's um, serendipity is sort of this situation when there are development of events by chance that happen in a happy and beneficial way. But I would change that and say that serendipity means being prepared and then having the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. And so for those of you who are interested in uh, becoming a president, it is a long and arduous journey, as you may have heard. And this is just one case example, right? So your education, obviously, the best education you can get, Michigan for psychology, Princeton for cognitive development for my PhD. But you can see all the mascots down here below. So this is a 39-year journey, and um, 37 of them were in the CSUs. I've worked at six CSUs and started at Indiana University. And you can see here that you, as you go forward in life, um, you know, associate, you know, a lecturer, then assistant professor, associate, a full professor, associate dean, then I became associate provost, provost twice, and then finally president. So this, you all know what this is, is climbing the ladder and what do you, what happens at the top? You know, it's the glass ceiling, but do you know what they call it for API? Does anyone know? It's not the glass ceiling, it's called the bamboo ceiling, right? So um, what I would tell you is that it is a paradox. Back in 1987, the Time magazine covered the Asian American whiz kids, and we became suddenly the Asian model minority. And so then this idea of how can there be a bamboo ceiling when you are the model minority? Uh, so this was actually quantified in 2017, that there is a pervasive American um, Asian American bamboo ceiling. It's now been quantified uh, from an economic standpoint. So what I'll just close with is to let you know that when I became president, um, the state controller, Betty Yee, asked the library of the state of California to do a study, um, a research question, how many API women have there been appointed as presidents of four-year colleges? There's lots more at the community college level, but so far, this is, uh, we're trying to no one has actually, uh, you know, been able to accumulate a, a comprehensive list, but this is uh, between, 
you know, AARI and uh, the kinds of data that I'm trying to complete. These are the um, 14 that we're aware of, but there are probably a few more that are recent. And two of us are retiring in uh, 23 and 24, myself and Meredith. So there will only be six that remain in 2024. So this just gives you a sample. And then here's all the different countries of origin. So I was the first Korean American uh, president in the US. And then as, as Les said, this is not just true for education. Look at this, corporate CEOs, only 10 Asian American CEOs made it to the list in 2014. Our legislative, um, all of our mayors, congressmen and women, um, you know, assembly members, et cetera, senators, again, fewer than 2% are held by Asian Americans. Sports, pro sports, Les mentioned that. Education is, is one that we also know. So um, I won't go into this because this will come later, but we have lots of tips and we can talk about how we can um, you know, continue to um, support each other and support those of you interested in the pipeline. But what I would simply close by saying is that um, all of my leadership experiences were people that called me and said, you've been nominated or we want you to apply. So I didn't start out wanting to be a president like Les, that if you do have a track record of being able to communicate, work with diverse constituency groups and get things done in terms of reports and achievements and outcomes, um, and then make sure you have the right fit with your institution, that you can move up the ladder and uh, join the C-suite. So that's it. Thank Thank you. You know, in, in the work that we did at the City University, um, one of the recommendations was that we need to nominate each other and make sure that we call attention to our colleagues who are well qualified. Uh, Les, um, I'd like to hear your comments, please. God, how can I follow those two acts? That's just terrific. Um, my, my history is a little bit different. I, I was raised in East Oakland. My father was caught up in the exclusion laws of the 20s and uh, actually arrived on Angel Island nine years old alone because the U.S. government would not allow my grandmother to stay and bring two children in. So she had to return back to Hong Kong. Uh, and so my and never returned back. So my father was adopted by Irish uh, parents in Southern California. My mother is Mexican-American migrant worker, uh, three years of schooling. Uh, um, their connection to education was by pure desire uh, from my brothers and sister and I. And unlike uh, my two colleagues, um, I have a little bit different history. Um, I was not a great student, but what I could do was hit a baseball uh, better than most people. And so I got into a pretty good high school in California. Uh, not on academic skills, but on being able to hit and catch baseballs. Um, when I wanted to go to college, uh, the only schools that would talk to me were schools that wanted me to play baseball. And um, interestingly enough, uh, three of them said that I could only get in if I made the varsity team as a freshman. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen, especially when you're as... Uh, I was at that time, I was much smaller than I am right now, width wise. Uh, so the only school that took me was Gonzaga University in Spokane and uh, not on a baseball scholarship, a regular admit. And I had to work my my way through. 
Um, and I'm a very competitive person, so I think my participation in high-level uh, sports uh, had given me enough of a backbone to not put up with people telling me, you can't do this and you can't do that. Um, and I just said, well, I'm just going to show you that I can do that. And so um, it was also during that time when I was uh, 18, 19, long ago, my mentor was at San Francisco State, was leading the student strike that now still is the longest student strike in higher ed history. And uh, he also, like my parents said, during those volatile 60s, said, Les, you've got the talent, you got to admit it, and you got to get out of California. And so I went to Spokane, Washington. Uh, and, you know, when you have parents that have no connection to education at all, uh, I think um, my father probably was the best example as an orphan. Uh, started at the National Dollar Stores, Chinese owned and operated as a janitor. And 20 years later was the executive vice president and it was all about handling people and managing people and uh, I probably my best lesson in leadership was just listening and watching my father handle people with respect with dignity etc and it was all stuff off uh, the job description I happened to uh, date a girl in high school who liked baseball players but her father was also a physicist at Lawrence Livermore Labs. And he also said, you know, you're going to have to come have some dinners with me uh, because we think you've got a brain and you don't think you have one, but we do. So I started attending these dinners uh, at his house in Livermore, California, and found out that his buddies were uh, two Nobel Prize winners, uh, national science winners. They were top-notch physicists. Uh, my father-in-law was the designer of the first digital supercomputer. I didn't know any of that. So the rule was, is that if you're going to show up for dinner, you better talk or you got to pay for your meal. Uh, and so they were testing me like crazy. And it, I tell you, it was unfettered. It was, if you can think, you can do this. And um, as I moved through, I, I got a job in the community colleges, was there for a long time. And then um, sort of worked my way up. And I just kept thinking, if I became a dean, I'm going to think about becoming a vice president. And when I was offered a provost job, for me, that was an intermediate step to becoming president. So I always, for my parents and mentors, had this notion that learning never stops. You know, you just keep pushing yourself. And uh, I had good role models that told me that Sometimes it's not the job description that's killing you. It's what I call the intangibles. And so like Frank, I have a chapter in the same book and I called it uh, high expectations, short fuses. And I've been tracking the path of Asian American, Asian presidents and provosts for a while now. And I've been finding out something really odd and then I'll stop my, my last plug for the day. Most of the dismissals were often over silly, small things. Not listening, not paying attention. Um, you gotta learn an institution from the bottom up. You know, you don't have to start at the trustees and work down. And it, it, the whole notion of being able to listen well 
and getting everyone around you who's smarter than you because they know that you're going to make the call. But I needed smart people around me and um, that worked nicely because I think leadership is about attracting people who want to follow you as opposed to managing them. And uh, that's turned out pretty nicely. But that will come out, Frank, pretty soon, I think, next year. I'm not sure. But, uh, again, uh, the whole notion that uh, my brothers and sisters, Asian, Asian American men and women who have been terminated have been for the silliest, silliest things. Bright people, super managers, super leaders, but didn't pay attention to a lot of the intangibles that go along with being a leader. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, thank you, Les. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a question based on a conversation we had uh, during the preparation time for this um, this panel. You had mentioned anecdotally um, speaking to um, a number of Asia, uh, API presidents, and there was something about playing team sports, both men and women. <laughs> and what I'd like to ask you is, what do you think were the skills or the assets that they derived from that experience that might be helpful to somebody aspiring towards the presidency? So it is the skill set more than the sport that, that I'd like to, to ask you about. You know, that that's a great question. Back in the 80s, uh, the number of us who were presidents uh, and, and 90s who were presidents at four-year institutions, we got together. And I sort of tried to find out what's the common denominator. Why are the 12 of us representing all of the Digimon Research Ones and Masters Twos? We could sit at one table in a Chinese restaurant. Every one of us played sports. Everyone, men and women. And I think it's the notion of teamwork, a greater good, uh, knowing how to manage. Because you, you can only win in sports if you get along with people around you. And this whole notion of contribution. Uh, and we were extremely competitive. Uh, but the, the notion of team sports imbued uh, your dependence on everyone else to play well. And, and that's why I'm, I'm not a very big person, but I always thought the most malign athlete in sports are point guards, right? Because they're feeding everyone else the ball, uh, you know, to score all of the points. Uh, talk to Jeremy Lin and he'll tell you about, you know, what it means to be a team player. But that's at an, a really elite level. But when you look at the the lessons learned from teamwork, helping each other, group goals, I think sports are a great avenue uh, for that. Yes, may, may add to that. So I, I don't want this to come out sounding uh, negative, but you are not likely to be hired as a president because you're the best scholar on the faculty. I'll, I'll just speak about myself. I've published, I've written a book, you know, I would fit okay in sort of the mid-range of faculty at all the institutions I've been at. Would I be the superstar professor? No. Why do I say this? Because what is so important are soft skills, are, are things other than, you know, I don't care if you went to Harvard College and 
Yale for a JD and PhD. And unless you're looking at being president of an R1, right? So, okay, different game if your goal, if you came and you said, I only want to be president at one of the Ivies. Okay, there your publication track record is going to be more important. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying you can be an idiot. I'm not saying you can be unpublished. You have to have checked the boxes. But then to be a competitive candidate, this is not about do you have the best publication record because that's not the job. So there's a whole set of skill sets that you may not have worked on that I did not work on when I was young that over time I realized, you know, working a room, do, doing things that your parents didn't do and that they may have underestimated, that is so important to these jobs, just like team sports. They, what they have in common is they're all about soft skills. Yeah, I just want to uh, echo what Frank and Les are saying, is that, as I said, my most important thing, uh, advice to you is to improve your communication skills, the soft skills, as Frank is saying. And then, and Les, actually, there are studies to show that individuals who played team sports in high school were more likely than to become CEOs, particularly if they're women, um, because learning how to play and be part of a team, how to win and how to lose are very important skills in the boardroom. So uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies are more likely to have had some exposure and participation in team sports, particularly among young women. So um, having, and as we know, um, the, as I showed to you the data, the NCAA, there are very few Asians that participate in many of those kinds of sports, um, in part because of the focus on academics as opposed to sports. Um, so those are really key, key uh, points to make but that Frank and Les have already um, underscored. Thank you. Um, Ellen, this is a great segue into the next question. Um, in your opinion, do you think that API women face additional or different challenges than their male counterparts? And it's important to hear from both Frank and Les as well, because they've engaged in a conversation about that with the two of us. Um, so please, Ellen, go ahead. Yes, unfortunately, um, all APIs have carry negative stereotypes in America, but for women, it is a kind of a double-edged sword. And so uh, on the one hand, there are uh, portrayals, uh, negative portrayals of Asian women in the sort of the role of the supplicant, the exotic, the courtesan. Um, so, and on the other hand, uh, Asian women are also depicted in very negative ways in terms of being the dragon lady, the tiger mom. So we have these sort of polar opposites in some ways. And so um, I think also because I will tell you that I have had experience with my other API colleagues, um, whether male or women, if they have a strong accent from their Asian country of origin, they suffer because uh, people will say, I can't understand that person. They seem to be uh, exemplify what uh, now we call the perpetual foreigner, that we look so different from uh, the rest of mainstream America that they just assume that we are the perpetual foreigner and therefore they don't uh, identify with us. They, and of course, some of the, our Asian countries of origin tend to have um, forms of government and interaction that are very hierarchical, that are very authoritarian. 
And those characteristics do not work in higher ed. There's a much more flattened kind of structure. People expect you to be accessible, like Frank says, to have the soft skills, to consult, to communicate, to collaborate. And those are skills that often are not uh, aligned with countries of origin in the Asian countries, whether it be China, et cetera, um, North Korea, you know, those are very different kinds of, um, you know, uh, interactional styles. So as women, we're even more in that role of you're either too subservient, too quiet, too nice, um, you know, and those kinds of things. So you have to be able to walk that general balance. Now, I think the weird part for me is that because I was born and raised and totally bought into the assimilation pot, um, I always thought of myself as American first and really didn't identify totally uh, with being Korean American for sure. So um, I will tell you one terrible thing is that um, as I continue to go into higher ed, people would sometimes tell me, you know, when I first met you, you were you were Asian to me. And then they say, but, you know, you're not really Asian. So I have had people, you know, use the term banana yellow on the outside, white on the inside, sort of like the Oreo pejorative comment or the, the idea that somehow I, have, I seem so assimilated that people get used to me and now they accept me because I'm so Americanized in my style of uh, interaction and leadership. So those are things that I think are problematic that we face, um, you know, as API and then as, particularly as Asian American women in, in addition. Thank you. Helen, I'd love to add to what you're saying. You're right on the mark. Um, with my female mentees, I tell them to learn two things if you want to be a president. Learn how to play golf and read the sports page. Because most of your fundraising is going to occur on the golf course or at a stadium somewhere. And if you can't speak that lingo, uh, people are always going to wonder if you're tough enough. Right. And I think that's the criticism of Asian, Asian American leaders is, will you be tough enough? I, I was stunned uh, in one of my presidencies uh, when I had to confront a football coach that didn't think I had the backbone to fire him. Well, two weeks later, he was unemployed. And everyone went, whoa, I think we have a leader in the office now. Uh, and so, you know, it's. Like you're saying, there's that stereotype of soft, weak, not tough enough. Can you make the right call? Can you play golf? You know, can you talk about your sports teams with any level of and show up for sports, uh, whether you like it or not? Those are, you know, one of those intangibles of being able to step into the, the broader culture who thrive on sports. I spent a little bit of time learning about esports because I thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And now the NCAA is giving letters and scholarships to esport participants. And I'm going, well, what are they doing? They're not even sweating. They're in a sofa with their computers. Uh, but it's very, very competitive. So I, you know, I just add what you say, there are so many dominant stereotypes of whether we have the right stuff to borrow that phrase from Americana. And you do not have to be the loudest person. You can be effective and quiet, but understand this is a public role. You know, this phrase kids have these days to be performative. One of the things that I realize when I hear that phrase is my whole job is 
performative. What I mean is I'm performing the role of president. I cannot walk around anywhere. I can't go to dinner and and think that it's private. And I'm in New York City, but routinely the waiter or waitress says, oh, I go to Queens College, and they know who I am. So you're on all the time. So you have to adjust this to who you are. We all have a personality, right? And you can't totally reinvent yourself as a president and just be someone you're not. But you have to be the best version or a public version of who you are. This is a, you are seeing a public version of me. When I'm sitting by myself in my apartment, one thing, I'm not in a coat and tie, and I don't, I'm not like this, all right? But these two versions of me are sufficiently related that I can do this most of my waking hours, but I need some downtime, as everyone does, uh, with family and friends. And and so part of understanding issues about gender or sexual orientation or any other aspect of who you are is you're going to need to craft, and if you're a faculty member or already in some leadership, well, you already sort of have this, but you need to be aware there's going to be a public version of you that needs to be on. And if you slip up and you forget that you're public, that could lead to your end. <laughs> Thank you for that insight. Um, one last question before we open up to the audience, because I know that you're particularly eager to hear from the audience. Um from the vantage point now of having experienced the presidency, what advice can you offer leaders in higher education to, um, in, in terms of what they can do to support filling an API pipeline? What opportunities, for example, can be offered? And um, I'm going to start with Ellen. So I think um, the thing that lifted my heart was actually having this panel, number one, um, and because it could, uh, so as, you know, some of the panelists and I have talked about is that what can we do next to make this more intentional? I will tell you that maybe back in, oh, it must have been, I don't remember now if it was in the late 80s or the early 90s, I remember getting um nominated for a kind of an API leadership thing that I think came through ACE so that if we could get an organization interested in putting together kind of a two, it was a two or three day leadership program that within it was hosted at San Jose State by a dean who was API. Um, he passed away some several years ago, so I unfortunately don't remember his name, but if we could have some way of getting um, a professional organization, a national one, interested in sort of building a pipeline and a program, that that would be a start and to make it intentional, to give it some visibility and to put some resources behind it. So that's uh, one of the things that I, that I'm hoping that we can uh, begin to mobilize in that way. And then of course, having the data, um, you know, as you know, that the Storbeck and Pimentel who had the other data on API uh, pipeline, they were stunned, stunned to see that there were so few API Presidents. So CSU is currently searching for seven retiring presidents this year and next year. And so if those of you are in the pipeline and are close, that is, if you've had the provost kind of position or a cabinet level, then you need to reach out to me and I can so see how I can help facilitate that. But to be intentional, I think, is a really key ingredient. So what I have been doing in the last several years 
is nominating API people that I believe are in the pipeline and are interested to get these leadership programs. So ASCU, American Association for State Colleges and University, is one that has a variety of leadership programs. Of course, I also attended the Harvard Management Development Program. They have a variety of different places where you can get leadership training to move you into considering the pathway to a presidency. Thank you. Uh, Frank, your thoughts? Well, we, we need to help one another and uh, advocate. You know, you probably have this experience. I cannot tell you how many times, even with people who have a civil rights record, do diversity work, I'm, I encounter the model minority myth. I have people just tell me to my face, what, what, what do you need these programs for? Asian Americans don't have problems. And I have people, even at institutions where you can show them there, there is a huge discrepancy who say there are plenty of Asian Americans in leadership roles. That's just not true. And I want to give a special shout out to Joyce Moy. I would not be president of Queens College and David Wu would not be president of Baruch College, a sister institution within, in our system, were it not for Joyce's advocacy and everything that she has done over the years. So advocacy, standing up and speaking out, and that sometimes is controversial. It's something else that our parents and grandparents taught us not to do, you know, to make a fuss about things. But if you don't make a fuss about this stuff, people are just going to assume, oh, there, there aren't any issues that the Asians are happy. Thank you. Uh, Les, your thoughts? You know, I I never got the opportunity to go to the, the blue chip schools uh, at all. Um, but what I did is I looked for leaders and mentors who I felt represented the values and morals that I wanted to be. And I had to kick up my courage to go up to them and say, you know, I value what you do and I hope you don't mind, but I'm watching you. And inevitably they invited me to lunch and dinner. You know, I mean, it was just automatic. And I just, they said, well, do you want to talk? And I said, I'm just watching you. I want to learn the kinds of skills that you have by seeing how you do it. And, and a lot of it is soft skills, like Frank said. It's like how to manage people. How do you build trust? And and great if you can go to the Harvard leadership schools and things like that. I, You know, I look for nonprofit leaders who went from nothing to something. You know, how did they do that, right? How, what skills? Because they're not in a textbook. My father did not have a textbook on how to move from a janitor to a senior vice president of 40 department stores. There's no textbook. And it was all this intangible stuff that you just, you have to keep your eyes out open. But I, I want to close by something. Um, you know, I was sort of raised in mostly a black and, and, and Hispanic neighborhoods. I was surprised how often the older people would go pull young people with talent and say, what are you doing? So I've been on a mission now to every academic school I go to. If I see an Asian, Asian Pacific American faculty member, chair, et cetera, I'll go up to them after, give them a card, and I'll say, hey, look, um, here's what I'm interested in. If you want to talk, let me know. And each person I've done that to, I said, do you have any mentors? Are you talking to folks? Not a single one. I was sort of one of the first initiated discussion with them about what's the path ahead? What do you see for yourself? 
What do you want to learn? Let's talk. And my rule is typically, I will never call them. If you want to talk, you call me. So I think much like other ethnic communities, you got to reach out, you got to participate. Uh, you got to keep your eyes open. And like my colleagues are saying, when a position opens, you call someone and say, I think this is good for you. Let's, let's get you going. I can help you. Uh, so that's the importance of building a network so that you have people who are available to you uh, to, to answer your questions. Well, thank you. And so now it's our opportunity to hear from our audience. You know, again, we are particularly interested in hearing your comments, your reactions to what has been said. Tell us what you think you might need if you're interested in pursuing leadership positions. And let's talk about um, getting together again for further discussions putting together an infrastructure where possible to support one another and so forth. And you're going to be seeing throughout the chat a note um, to enter comments or to um, in, uh, indicate your interest in pursuing this further uh, by uh, sending an email to pipeline at aaari.info, ari.info. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. And I want to thank the presidents and former presidents uh, and this panel for this wonderful event. Uh, I've been waiting for this event for two decades of my career, and I'm so glad to be able to attend. Uh, my question is, uh, you know, for those of us who are not on the faculty track, that did not go through the deanship or the provostship, how can one uh, potentially reach the presidency? So I'll open it up to the panelists. Well, I can say that we have an example of someone who came up the CEO rank. Um, I'm sorry, the uh, CFO, Chief Financial Officer. So um, Leroy Morishita was the um, uh, the Vice President for essentially Business and Finance, and then he actually did not have an EDD or a PhD. Um, but when his president said, you ought to consider moving into that realm, he then got um, kind of a leave of absence or something. So he actually finished his EDD at Harvard <laughs> and in higher education. And then he moved from uh, Sacramento State to become the president at um, East Bay in Hayward. So he, there are, you can ascend to the presidential role if you are a CFO, um, but you must have the EDD, the PhD, you know, the TOGA of some kind, um, you know, um, from a, a reputable institution, of course. So that is possible. Um, the other one that's in the CSU is, um, Richard Yao, he was a vice president for student affairs. He was a faculty member, a clinical psychologist on the faculty side, then eventually moved into student affairs. And then from there uh, became the president at Channel Islands. So there are multiple pathways, um, but all along the way, you have to show the ability to work with others, to be a leader, uh, to work with multiple constituency groups, especially if you're in a unionized environment. And, um, and then document outcomes. Nowadays, the coin of the realm is student success, graduation, enrollments, understanding. A lot of that needs some analytical skill. So beef up on your analytical skills and document um, your outcomes. I have to tell you, I've got two friends. One of them, who was the chief of staff, became a president. Huh? The other one, the other one. His strategy was, I am going to tell the president, I'll sit on every strategic planning committee you create. 
and I'll even chair them. And I have to tell you, he's on his way. He's going to become a president. So you have to find a, a niche to get into the university organization, if you may, processes, et cetera. And, you know, the number of chief of staffs, attorneys, uh, non-academic people becoming presidents is fairly significant. I mean, that's become a good path. Um, I'm, you know, Frank's a lawyer, uh, et cetera. I'm going to tease lawyers, but I have to tell you that the whole legal plight, if, especially if you live in Florida, Tennessee, some real Texas, some controversial areas, uh, uh, attorneys are really, you know, stepping into administrative posts. Frank's a great example of being successful at leading. Thank you. Uh, Frank, did you have a comment on that? I was just going to say what Les said, uh, the number of people who proceed from non-traditional routes, either not from a faculty role or from outside academia, is greater than zero, and it is increasing. It's still a minority. The uh, plurality, the single greatest group that gets drawn from, there are two. Uh, one is provost, and the other is sitting presidents of another institution. So if you want to become president someplace, actually the best way to do it is to already be a president. The next best way to do it is to be a sitting provost. But there are all sorts, there are CFOs, there, there are student affairs people, there are increasingly politicians. So there are lots of routes uh, to, to these roles. Thank you. Uh, there was a question in the chat uh, in terms of what can folks from other groups do to support and become great allies? Any thoughts on that? You know, in the chat, there was a question about fundraising, and I, I should have mentioned that when I mentioned sports pages and playing golf. But when I first became a president um, in 2004, fundraising was like 20% of my job. Uh, five years later, uh, by 2009 or 10, it was about 40%. And at San Francisco State, it was about 60% of my activities. So that means you eat a lot of restaurant food. You're out a lot. You got to stay fit, take care of yourself. But, um, you know, the the whole notion of, I'll go back to it. it it's It's all about people skills, you know, it, it's good listening, developing trust, knowing where to place it and, and be willing to make mistakes and recover uh, from them. Uh, and the, the job now is in senior administration is far more complex uh, than it has been, so. Thank you. Any other comments regarding allyship? Yeah, so I think um, what I would say is that if you know of other um, people on your campus or elsewhere that are um, up and coming for a leadership kind of position, um, confide in them, tell them that they that they should consider, encourage them. But um, and you can also let um, you know us know through you can put their names in the AERI. Um, you know, website and, and don't be afraid to consider those options yourself. 
so as Frank and Les have said, we are all in this together. We don't know everyone. So it would be helpful if you let yourselves be known or let others that you know of that are poised uh, to be known. So we can actively begin identifying a pool and um, trying to mentor and uh, get them greater experience in leadership kinds of capacities and programs. Um, and then again, the only other thing I would say is that I was serendipitous. I didn't uh, ever, um, almost all the positions that came forward to me in the last 15 or 20 years has been not because I sought anything out, but people would say, we know we've seen your work, we have know of you, we want you to apply. And so people were nominating and asking me to apply for these positions. So if you continue to do a great job and you can document outcomes, um, you get noticed. Not always, but you, that is more likely. I, I had put this in the chat and I'll say it out loud. And I invite uh, uh, my co-panelists to, to disagree. And this is a slight exaggeration, but I think for president roles, nobody who applies gets the job. What I mean by that is if you just write in by yourself and say, I saw the ad in the Chronicle Fire ad, I'd like to apply, that sort of signals you don't understand how it works. The way this works is you get nominated. By who? You get nominated typically by sitting presidents or by retired presidents. And search firms have a stable, and you might not make it in one search, but they'll remember you and often favorably, and they'll call you again. And once you've been a finalist anywhere, even if it was supposed to have been confidential, word gets out, and you've kind of been vetted. So once you've been a finalist, another great way to become a president is to have been a finalist earlier and not gotten it if you're the runner-up. So in a system, they'll remember you. And if you were really close, if you were the favorite of everyone except one powerful donor, they might call you the next year, right? So you need to get yourself nominated. You don't just write, I mean, you do apply at some point, but you don't, if you just write in by yourself and say, I'd like to apply for this job, I've never heard of someone getting this job that way with zero nominations and zero support. You, you got to have people supporting you, but I invite my co-panelists to, to correct what I've said. So I'm not a co-panelist, but I will tell you that at CUNY, what we did when the positions opened up was to circulate a copy of the posting among all of the Asian American presidents that we knew existed, um, hoping that they would nominate someone that was in their orbit. Um, the other thing we did was identify potential leaders from within CUNY itself, and we actually had them go meet with the recruiters for the position just to get a sense of how prepared they were, what, what else they needed to do if ultimately they were going to seek this role. So that's something that's very important. You can contact recruiters. They are more than happy to put you on their potential list because they make money from you. So you can be proactive in that way. They will, if, if you're a potential candidate, they're going to try to work with you and give you some guidance. Let's see. Um, there was a question here about someone who is in the DEI role and whether or not that would permanently track them, uh, particularly if you're an Asian American woman. So uh, I guess the more generic form of that question would be, are there positions where people are likely to be tracked and perhaps not be able to get out and into a potential leadership role in, in terms of the presidency? 
Yeah, I just actually uh, tried to, was starting to respond to Jasmine. And so, and I also see that, uh, is it Wing Hu also has his hand up too. Uh, but so Jasmine, I would say that DEI by itself is not a likely pathway because the skills that a president needs is, has to extend beyond just simply DEI, which of course is, is extremely vital to any institution, but having um, content area, particularly in academic affairs, budgeting, those are key areas. And you can get, uh, I have seen people get pigeonholed in that route only. I do know of a president who's at UC Merced now, came from the CSU, uh, Juan Munoz, and he was uh, the chief diversity officer, but he had a big portfolio. He didn't just have in Texas. He had, um, he was became like the executive vice president that included in and among his portfolio was DEISJ. But beyond that, there were other things that were very important to the day-to-day uh, -day functioning of the campus. So if you want to go up and you're only DEI, you need to diversify your portfolio a little bit more uh, to have more content area. And then I see, is, how do you pronounce your name? Is it King, Queen? Oh, um, King. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, should I ask a question now? Yes, please. Okay. Well, first of all, I really want to thank President Wong, President Jun, and President Wu for, for your wonderful insight and, and uh, all the advice you have provided so far. Uh, this is really a great uh, occasion uh, for all of us to learn. And also thank you, Joyce, very much for organizing this uh, panel, um, such a wonderful uh, event. Um, I am currently the Dean of Kaufman School of Business at Brooklyn College, and I'm uh, feeling uh, great of doing this job. Uh, based on my prior experience, and I want to follow up with what uh, President Wang said about the fundraising. Um, you know, my, in, in, before this job, I had uh, multiple searches and participated in multiple searches. Uh, one of the things I feel strongly that put Asian Americans at a disadvantage, especially those who did not grow up in America, right? So we speak with some accent. Um, and uh, that is fundraising. The, the search committee seems automatically assuming that you are not going to be a great fundraiser, uh, especially when we are just going up, you know, from associating to being maybe through provost, these kind of positions. Uh, we did not have a strong track record yet, right? So how do you convince or demonstrate that you are able to work uh, with donors? You are able to build great relationships. You are able to uh, do great fundraising and you are a great team player and you have these capabilities, not although you don't have a record yet. Uh, it seems to me that's always the, the final uh, final roadblock that stops, you know. Okay, girls. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I'll volunteer two answers. One builds on the answer about DEI. You know, you're not going to get this job if you come out of a background where all you've done for 25 years is one thing. So it's not limited to DEI. You could be the best professor of X, and if that's all you've done, you will not be a president. These are generalist jobs. And in the military, a general is called a general for a lot of reasons, but it actually also refers to the general nature of the job. That's why everyone who's a general has held so many commands doing so many different things. No one becomes a general doing one thing. To the question about fundraising, you do need a track record, but you can develop it. Here's how. 
Do it for your church. Do it for the Boy Scouts. Do it for your children's school. You know, uh, fundraising is this mysterious area, and most people are uncomfortable with it. Most people haven't done it. It's lots of fun. It's like going on a lot of dates, right? Uh, and, and it's getting to know people, and they're generally, by the time the president sees them, you don't just go up to people and ask them for money. They're people who already like the institution. You're there to close the deal. Fundraising is one of the most pleasant things I do. It is much better than faculty meetings or anything else. And if you don't have a track record, don't worry. 99.9% of the world doesn't have a track record, but you can develop one in uh, under two years. Whatever the thing is you do where you're a volunteer, go raise money for them. Now, if you said to me, I have no outside interests, um, I'm not religious, I don't go to a church, synagogue, or a mosque, I have no children, I don't participate in any of their activities, I'm not involved in any civic association, then I have another piece of advice for you. Your whole life and the, your CV is going to look like you're not a full human being, so go join a church, right? I don't care what church, just join it, and then do some fundraising for them. And three years from now, you will be able to say, I helped raise 100000 for the new wing of our church, and that instantly gives you credibility, so you can develop this skill set. Well, and I would also just add to Frank is absolutely correct, is that uh, you can volunteer whatever institution you're at. You tell your vice president for advancement, I would love to be able to assist in any way and asked if you could, um, you can, you know, especially what is your position now? Um, um, yeah, I am the dean of Coffin School Business. I am oh. involved. Yeah, it's a dean you have to be right now in Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm talking about my prior experience when when, when I was doing this, uh, you know, the dean search. <laughs> um, and that seems to be the final roadblock in many search committee that they always doubt as an Asian, Asian American, uh, are you able to do fundraising? Um, you know, sometimes it's not explicitly stated, but you, you can you can tell from the question, right? Are you able to, uh, like uh, Dr. Wang said, be able to talk sports, right? Uh, play golf, and uh, and and you know, build relationship with uh, with the rich donors. Uh, so that's always something that I, I think there are many obstacles that we're facing uh, in our career, uh, but this seems to be one that is pretty obvious there. Well, you know, one, one, sorry, one, one other quick thing is that um, because you may have uh, contacts with other Asian businesses, that you might be able to be seen as someone who has, who's a bridge to Asian owned businesses and entities, organizations, and that would actually be a positive. So don't forget to explore and deepen because uh, fundraising is all about, as they say, friend raising, developing your friendships. Um, and having those strong relationships and then matching their interest to the interest in the institution. So it's really, as Frank says, it's, it's a joyful thing to do is to, um, you know, get funding for the programs that you love and that they love and then find that match together. Sorry, Les, go ahead. I have to tell you, I've, I've been keeping track, but I'm helping a couple people learn how to raise money. And 
I had to tell them the same thing, Alan, that it's all about the relationship. Of all the gifts I've raised that were 500,000 to $30 million a gift, I never made the ask. I established the relationship and I built trust that if they were gonna give me money, I was gonna deliver on the goals that that donor wanted to affect. And I had, I was so stunned because it, kid you not, nine rounds of golf or nine holes of golf, we're going into the room. I've been doing friendship building, relationship building with this person. And he turns to me and he goes, what could you do with $10 million? And I said, well, how much time do you have? And I had these things in my head going, I know exactly what $10 million could do. But then I said to him, where do you want your name associated? What do you want to have an impact with? And, and then I said to him, I said, two years, I could do that. Writes me a check. So the whole issue is about that relationship, trust building, et cetera. And oftentimes, particularly with uh, my Asian clients, they didn't want me as the president to ask them for money. They wanted their under person talking to my underling, setting up everything, and then we close the deal over a deal. And, and I was so shocked at how rare I had. I had to ask for money in the $20,000, $10,050 range. So that builds up your practice because when you get in, again, it's all about the relationship that what Ellen is saying, the, the, the effort you put into building that relationship. And then you just say, I've heard that you like, you know, accounting majors who are going to go into nonprofit. My head goes, who's the professor that does that work? What are we doing? How can I connect them? And then I go back to that person. I said, here's our capabilities. Because you never want to ask for money that you know you can't deliver on. So you got to do your homework on this stuff. But I have to tell you, I practice in front of a mirror, by the way. You have to hear yourself say to someone, I'm here because I need your help. And I need your help at this kind of level to do these kinds of things. So it's the effect that you emphasize and not the amount of money. Because oftentimes they'll give you more. Yeah, so here's a, a question for all of you with regard to fundraising as well. What would you say about relationships with legislators uh, and others that may have the keys to some funding for your, your particular campus? That's a huge part of my job. I spend lots of time with uh, the city uh, council members, with uh, state assembly and senate members, and with federal government leaders in an appropriate way. As a public institution, I file a lobbying report that is a public document. Anyone can look up every meeting I've had, where I had it, how much time I spent. There are strict limits as to all the money, et cetera. Uh, it, none of this is about me. It's not about Frank Wu. It's not about, and there are a couple of members of different bodies that I knew prior to having this job from advocacy work. None of them is going to do me a favor. That's inappropriate, right? So you are not, and that same thing is true for fundraising. No one's going to give your institution loads of money because they like you or 
let's put it this way, it's unlikely that that's going to happen. However, if you turn them off with your personality or your disinterest or just because you're rude at lunch or their sense that you're not really committed to being there and the program you're asking for, you can, because of your personal behavior, turn away donors, right? Um, this is all about your professional role and do you believe and are you a good spokesperson for, for what you're pitching? Uh, and legislative relations for public institutions and even for private, but especially for public, that's at least 10% of my job. And right now during budget season, uh, the priority, if there's a request, I just canceled a couple meetings in order to be at a speech the borough president is giving. Why? Because the two minutes I spend with the borough president before his speech, because he requested that I be there, and he may want me to say a word or two of praise for him, which I'm happy to do, the two minutes of private time or 90 seconds, that is worth canceling my internal meetings to go get that time because he's worth millions of dollars every year to me. Thank you for that. Yeah, I would say, echo it. As a state institution, you do have to be very, very careful. There are um, bright line boundaries in what a legislator can or cannot do. And he, <clears throat> Frank's right. They're not there because of um, of you as a president, but they're there because they are, your institution serves their constituency geographic uh, footprint. <clears throat> so they know. So the one thing we just got back yesterday from our annual um, advocacy day in the Capitol in Sacramento and met with all of our legislators there. So I think the key there is to develop those. And I will say another thing to, to worry about is that I happen to be in a more conservative area of Central California. So I can never, you can never talk politics, partisan politics, when you're a president, <laughs> particularly when you're in a, a variable, variable set, section <clears throat> of a state where there's, um, you know, in, in the Central Valley, there's more conservative uh, partisan uh, individuals. So you have to walk a very balanced line and always talk about what's the purpose of the institution. It is to grow um, highly qualified graduates who would then enter the workforce. So I will say that one thing that has been helpful is we did an economic impact report. So it's an economic study of our alumni, of our, all of our employees, our students, to show the tremendous impact that having a state institution in your school, in your district, in your county has for the economic um, health and vigor, vigorous um, economy. So our study showed that $770.5 million comes back to our region because of our 60,000 plus alumni who generally stay in the area, the tax um, taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So um, <clears throat> making sure about that. And then the other thing I actually do is present them with the total number of students that we have that are in their district. So they can see that they have potentially all these voters and then invite them to come when they want to. Um, we have student clubs that will invite the uh, speakers to come and speak, particularly if they would like to come during their election season and uh, talk to students who are voters. So those are other things that they also enjoy. And then having this welcoming atmosphere about what is the college doing to help move um, their <clears throat> their districts. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much. Um, we are uh, a few minutes from our closing time. So I want to thank all of our panelists and ask them to have the final word. If there was one last message 
uh, for the audience, what would it be? And uh, Frank, if you don't mind, I think I'll start with you. These are, are actually great jobs. We're changing people's lives uh, for the better. Uh, and look, if I can get this job, you can get this job. It just depends on what you're willing to sacrifice. We didn't really talk about, but you have to give up a lot of your personal time. You have to have a supportive spouse or partner, and you have to really <laughs> want this job. But if I can get this job, you can get this job. Thank you. Ellen? Um, I think that the first key <clears throat> is to think about uh, being reflective of your own goals and your own skills and do a gap analysis of what areas you think you can improve and being intentional and always keeping the most important thing is that the goal is never to become a thing like a president. The most important thing is to say, where does your passion and your skills align and where do you think you can make a difference? And uh, with that perspective, you're never going to be disappointed about, well, I didn't achieve this, a dean, a vice president, a provost, a president. <clears throat> Instead, you think about where you can be the most effective with your skill sets and be intentional about it. And then always keep in the back of your mind how the API community, you can give back and how you're a member of that community. Thank you. And Liz? Um I'm going to steal something Ellen said earlier. I think the key, one of the keys is a sense of self-reflection. And in, in a lot of ways, uh, a sense of self-reflection that you and your spouse or partner uh, share in. Um, I think a lot of my fundraising experience was due to my wife. She's a terrific person. She's an author. She can do, I mean, she chats like crazy. She'll work a room better than anybody I know. But the key, when we get home, we talk about who'd you talk to? What'd you talk about? Do we need to connect with this person? So there's that teamwork component. Because as Frank said earlier, you're on all the time. It's 24-7, 365. People worried about what my wife wore at Safeway stores in San Francisco. They saw me go into a hamburger shop, which I loved, uh, in a part of town that my security people thought I was nuts, but they had a great hamburger. So that, you know, they, some people want you to be seen in places and not in others. Uh, so you, it's just that what, what's key is that self-reflection because you have to be able to tell yourself, I just did a really stupid thing and I've got to go fix that. I got to go apologize. Because I want people, I want the person I'm upset on my team. So, and you can't do that by just, you know, jerking it. You know, you just, you got to, you know, that quick response often doesn't work. So I, I think self-reflection is uh, critical. And um, sometimes the only barrier is yourself. Well, again, thank you all so much for those comments and for taking the time to be with all of us today. And if you are interested in further discussions, contributions to this effort to create a platform and to build the pipeline nationally, please uh, send us a message at pipeline at ari.info. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you.